Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, Alarmy. Before we dive into this episode, we want to make sure that you've heard the big news. The Alarmist has joined Patreon. We'll still be putting out two episodes a week, wherever you get your podcasts. So don't panic. Patreon subscribers will get access to our content ad free, as well as be able to listen to our discussion and final verdict in our aftermath episodes. We'll also be putting out additional bonus content and other fun stuff. So come join us at patreon.com slash the alarmist. We'll also include a link to the Patreon in our show description. So join us on Patreon. We're excited to have you come on board. And now on to our episode. Each week, we decide who's to blame for a historical tragedy. And each week, you tell us if we got it right. My name is Rebecca Delgado-Smith, and this is The Aftermath. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning into this episode of The Aftermath. Today, we're speaking with guest expert April Klemmer. April is a Hollywood historian. She leads walking tours where she inspires audiences by sharing behind-the-scenes stories of classic Hollywood. You can become a member of her virtual events and tours by going to her website, www.oldhollywoodtour.com. Let's hear what she has to say about the life and death of Judy Garland. Hi, April. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, thanks for having me. So could you start off by giving us a little backstory on Judy Garland? How did she get into the entertainment industry? And what was her life like before she was signed to be an actor for MGM? Judy Garland was a vaudeville baby. Uh, she had two very talented parents. Uh, well, probably her father a little more than her mother. But they 
were, they had this dream of doing vaudeville, uh, didn't work out. They ended up having uh, three girls and her father ran a theater and uh, Judy's mom was the quintessential stage mom. So she had uh, Judy's older two sisters you know, performing, you know, before the shows at the movie, they traveled around. And when Judy was about two, uh, as Frances Ethel Gum, as her her real name, or uh, Baby, Baby Gum, as they called her, uh, she joined the act. And so she was basically for performing from the time that she was two. And from some of the sources I've read, it sounds like she she loved performing, you know, she loved, she loved doing it. Her other sisters, not so much. And so uh, it quickly became obvious that she was the really talented sister. And you would think the other two might not take that well, but I think they were just relieved to get (laughs) off the treadmill that mom had them on. And uh, the family moved to Los Angeles and Judy's mom, of course, is you know, we're in the land of opportunity, you know, it's the, it's the perfect place for me to be. So she put Judy on the rounds and, and she was not a manager in, in a good manager, I guess, if you want to say that, like she wasn't selecting the venues very well. So Judy might go do, she might go perform at Coconut Grove or something really big like that in Los Angeles. And then maybe she would be in some little town, like way out, on the outskirts of LA in a tiny theater the next day. So she really just did it all until she was finally signed by MGM. What was it like for child actors at the time? What kind of process did they have to go through to get signed by a major studio? Uh, To my understanding, it wasn't much different than, than what an adult had to go through. Um, Maybe you had a little better chance if you were a child, just because there weren't a lot of kids beating down the door, it was probably just down to how persistent your mom was. Um, but they, you know, they, they had, you know, different children. I think with a child, when you have one that can perform very well and behaves on set and does what they they do what they need to do and, you know, get the product out, which is the most important thing in the studio system. Uh, they're a keeper. So. Mm. And who were the studio big wigs of the time? What, what were they like? Uh, uh, well, you had like the, for the purposes of this conversation, really Louis B. Mayer, uh, the head of MGM was, you know, who Judy was dealing with. I mean, you had Harry Cohn uh, at Columbia, who I don't like to editorialize, but doesn't sound like a great person. I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> yeah, Jack Warner, you know, Warner Brothers, um, William Fox, Carl, Carl Limley at Universal. One thing they had in common is, um, you know, they had kind of discovered this way to make movies and make money, then that was something that hadn't been cut off to them like a lot of traditional business opportunities were. And so they were out here just, you know, building their, there's literally a book called uh, something with empire in the title. I can't think of the name of it, but it's all about these studio heads. And Louis B. Mayer is the uh, head of MGM. And he liked to think of himself as this father figure 
to all of the stars and there are crazy, I don't want to get too off topic, but there are crazy stories about Louis B. Mayer and the way that he, he treated the stars, but he, he wanted them to be this big, happy family, but he also wanted them to behave Hmm. and do what he said. And so, you know, he was father, he knew best. And so Judy's, uh, father unfortunately passed away uh, not long after she was signed with MGM and she was probably felt like, Oh, you know, I don't have anybody there for me anymore. Mm. Cause Louis B. Mayer kind of takes on this father role and then she has the stage mom. So she's sort of unprotected. So in our episode, we, we called it the Hollywood machine of the 30s and 40s. What kind of hold did the major studios have over contract actors? And what what, what were they paid? How were they treated? Uh, complete control, uh, for their, particularly for their stars. They, they owned their stars. And they justified that by thinking, we take care of our stars. You know, if we... If you have a little headache, you know, here's, there's a hospital on the, the lot or not an actual hospital, but you know what I mean? You know, there's medical facilities. If you ram your car into a tree and drunk driving, we get this all hushed up for you. If you want to go on a trip, we'll book your tickets. If you need to buy a house here, we'll loan you the money. We'll take it out of your salary. But they extended all these kind of courtesies to their stars, but they expected absolute cooperation and loyalty. So they had a thing called a morals clause, which oh, a lot of people have probably heard of, but if you haven't, uh, it was a clause in your contract that basically said, it was, very, it was very vague, but it just said, if you do anything that reflects poorly on your image or would damage your image with the public or the studio, you could be fired. Wow. And so that means, you know, having an affair, having a baby out of wedlock, you know, being gay, any kind of thing that was considered like morally unfit at the time. But they also felt like they could control when people got married. Like with Judy's first marriage, they told her no. Wow. And that was maybe the first time she really stood up to the studio was she was very obstinate and was like, I'm going to do this. And she had never misbehaved that way. But that's what. The studios did it when I say that they owned those stars. Now, for what they got paid when they signed on, they usually got maybe one or two hundred dollars a week um, as a starlet contract. And they had a six month option, which meant in six months, the studio could decide to renew your option or the studio could decide they didn't want you anymore. So the studio really held all the cards with this six month option. And at the end, but they also wrote in, uh, they would sign people to a five-year contract and they'd say, okay, your salary will increase. Maybe I think Judy's first contract was a hundred dollars a week, increasing up to 500. Of course, after she did the wizard of Oz, they did give her a raise in a new contract, but, uh, I think they really took advantage of a lot of stars in the way that they paid them. And in terms of kids, were they treated any differently? Did they have any protections in place? They really didn't. They had to go to school for three hours a day. Uh, That's it. <laughs> and they had a, yeah, they had to go to school. They had a, a, a studio tutor, uh, you know, on set. So they would stop and they would do 
the school and a lot of those actors and actresses that went through the school, particularly MGM, uh, it's very interesting when you read about them, they grow up very insecure about their education because they probably wasn't, you know, the best quality because they, they just did what they had to do to check that box so they could get them back to work Hmm. and producing the product. Like the Hollywood machine is a great title because it was, it was a machine and they were cogs in this machine of producing product. Wow. So we learned that Judy was given uppers and downers uh, from as early as 13 years old, possibly 10 years old. Her diet was restricted. Her appearance was made fun of, at times altered in films. What would Judy's day-to-day have been like as a young and -and up-and-coming starlet? And uh, what did she go through at the hands of the studio? Yeah, well, she was on uppers and downers before she even got to the studio because her mother started to give them uppers and downers to make all of these um, vaudeville kind of bookings that she was getting for them. So Judy was already on that pill treadmill, I guess, if you will. Um, It became a lot worse at MGM. They gave her diet pills because they thought she was too pudgy and they wanted her to lose weight. Uh, They were at the commissary when she went to lunch. The staff was instructed to only serve her chicken soup. And she would sneak little bits of cake here and there. And so then they made her sit at a different table than the other, you know, the other kids because they thought maybe the other kids were like sneaking her like a French fry or a bite of a hamburger. Um, and and her mother was totally on board with this. So it, she didn't really escape at home. And they they this is just another way that they tried to control. They felt like they owned their stars and they wanted to control every aspect of their life. And so, you know, of course, they would give them the uppers to perform if they had really long days. And then they would, you know, knock them out so they could sleep for four hours and then get them up and do it all over again. What was her experience? Would you say it was unique or, or, or what was this something that also happened across the board with her other contemporaries? I think, I think it happened across the board with, with others, um, not so much child, but like teenage, when, you know, the teenage years, um, I've read some other celebrities, you know, that reference pills. Not all of them do, but uh, a great example of of she, you know, them being driven is when they were releasing Wizard of Oz. They were also releasing, getting ready to release another movie with Mickey Rooney, who is the huge, you know, teenage star at MGM, and they ha- they put them together. The public loved it, and so. They sent them out on a tour where they performed before a film. So these were sh- little bits they did before the film was screened. They called those shows. They did five a day on the weekdays and seven a day on the weekends. Wow. And they, Mickey Rooney was on that treadmill too, until he got sent back to MGM to do another movie. And Judy was left to kind of carry that, you know, by herself, but they would go on these crazy publicity tours like this to promote their films so if they weren't shooting they were using you in some way at mgm you were posing you know not not judy so much but you know maybe if you were a starlet if you weren't working on a film you were posing for cheesecake pictures or you were promoting something Um, but 
they really tried not to keep their product idle. Wow. I keep saying, wow. (laughs) (laughs) It's crazy. It is. (laughs) I can't believe it. Um, At 16, Judy is cast in The Wizard of Oz. How did she get the part? What I read is that Shirley Temple was favored for that role. And someone at MGM stepped in and maybe, you know what, I would have to double check this, but Shirley Temple was, was in the part and she was either um, someone else said, we've got to do something with, with Judy Garland. Cause they hadn't done that much with her at that point or, or Shirley might've become unavailable or turned it down. Um, but Shirley Temple was the other contender, but the role went to Judy and that was fairly early on. So when they were casting, um, they did cast around, you know, Judy and a few of the other players. Are, are there any behind the scenes tidbits that you can give us about the making of Wizard of Oz? And uh, what was Judy's experience like during the the film? Well, it, it sounded pretty rough for everybody. Just it was a very ambitious movie. They were creating this whole alternate world and and everything had to be believable they had really elaborate makeup for everybody in the movie um and interestingly when the wizard of oz had about three directors that worked on it and uh, the first director had judy in a blonde wig and all this glamour makeup and uh when the second director stepped in he said no, like she's, this is not going to be a believable film. She has to be a little girl. You know, she's the muse. She's who you're, you're experiencing the story through her eyes. And this is ridiculous. So he stripped that off, you know, and, and gave us the Judy Garland that we see or the Dorothy Gale that we see. Um, but the original Tin Man uh, had, uh, the, the makeup poisoned him. It had something in it that poisoned him and gave him a, a very serious lung infection. And it was, it was really bad. So they had to redo the makeup and replace him, but particularly uh, the tin man, the lion and the scarecrow, they went into all this makeup and elaborate costume. And they had to sit around all day under these really hot lights because they were shooting this color sequence. Color was very new at that time. And the lots were, or the lights were, were super, super hot. And so they were miserable. And they used to say, oh, we couldn't wait for Judy's school time to come. So we could just have like an hour of rest, you know, while she was with the tutor. And Judy herself was uh, developing into a young woman. But in this film, she's playing a young girl still. So they bound her breasts. I think they tried to corset everything down to make her look flat and you know hide her figure that was developing so she was really uncomfortable as well uh, they had there was all, all kinds of things w- that went on behind the set it was, it was such an ambitious movie it was way over budget and I read that it didn't start making a profit until um, they realized they re-released it later and then they started selling it for tv so it took years dec- decades to make a profit <laughs> <laughs> 
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all have stress and anxiety we carry around as we go about our everyday life. At The Alarmist, we know it's always better to say it out loud and talk it through. Whenever I stress about the sinking of the Titanic, I don't sit with those thoughts in a dark room. I turn on the lights and dive right into it. Therapy is a great place to get things off your chest and work through what's really going on. Maybe you can't stop spiraling or catastrophizing. I started therapy over 10 years ago and never looked back. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Heck, we sometimes change our minds and rethink the verdict at The Alarmist. And that's also okay when it comes to therapists. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com alarmist today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P dot com slash alarmist. After Oz, how, how did Judy's career take off? What kind of roles was she offered? Well, uh, right after, after they filmed Wizard of Oz, but before it was released, she did a film with Mickey Rooney, who was the moneymaker at the time. And they worked really well together. The public loved them together. And so she eventually made 10 films with Mickey Rooney. And that along with the Wizard of Oz, that kind of put her in this slot at the studio with the label of kind of the good girl, like the girl that you, maybe you don't want to take on a date, but she's your best friend, (laughs) you know, and they sort of, Judy wanted to be desirable and, and seen as beautiful and sexy. And not only was she kind of labeled as, oh, you can't be that girl. You have to be kind of the safe girl. But uh, as part of trying to control her weight, uh, they would at times 
you know, joke about her appearance and make fun of her. And Louis B. Mayer, the studio head, took to calling her my little hunchback. And she tried to laugh it off. But I can you imagine like the vulnerability, you know, how how you're feeling when you're in your teen years and your body's changing and developing and you want to be attractive. And then you're under this major spotlight. And then your boss is like, oh, my little hunchback, you know. What? <laughs> it's just not okay. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, so what was Judy's personal life like after she shot to stardom? How, how did she, I, I'm sorry, who did she hang out with? And where did she hang out around town? <laughs> what was her life like? She enjoyed spending time with the other young stars of the day, particularly the MGM ones, um, so, you know, Lana Turner was in that mix. Um, and for a, for a little while, Judy, you know, Mickey Rooney, you know, all, all of these people, they would go out and they would go to all the hot spots. But while Lana Turner could do that and it was good for her sultry, sexy image, it was not good for Judy to be seen out and about, you know, as this, you know, nightclub queen when she's supposed to be this sweet little girl next door. So the studio called her out and they said, you need to, you need to calm down. You, you have to stay home. This is bad for your image. And they had one of the big gossip columnists in Hollywood even put a little item in her column that said, if uh, Judy should listen to her bosses at the studio who really know what's best for her and curb her clubbing or some little item in the in the paper to kind of you know jab her a little bit but but she did enjoy that and as she as she got older she started she was more sophisticated than someone her age because of her life experiences and she started to be attracted to older men so she would develop these really intense crushes Uh, a lot of times they were unrequited um and that just fed more into her insecurity Mm. about herself Mm-hmm. I can see that. In 1950, after over a decade of addiction and, and nervous breakdowns, Judy's contract at MGM is terminated. But she still continues to star in films, including A Star is Born. How devastating would it have been for a, a contract actor like, you know, like her to get fired? How, how did she then work the system to be able to do other films? Well, for Judy in particular, it it was extremely devastating for her to be fired because she had been at MGM for her entire career. And so she, uh, I've read that she tried to commit suicide. She she was extremely distraught over losing her foot, you know, her, her career is, you know, the way that she felt, but she, she was Judy Garland. And she, she was still this, she had this magic, you know, that certain entertain entertainers have. And, you know, at some point that's still box office. Um, They still have an audience and people are always going to want to cash in on that at the end of the day. And so she, you know, at that time there were other actors and actresses who wanted, you know, were either being let go because they were becoming very expensive and the studio system was starting to break down around that time anyway. And um, some people wanted to get out of it because they didn't like 
the level of control the studio had over their lives, over the roles that they played. And so you could freelance. And so that's what Judy was doing. You know, maybe she would sign a contract for maybe one or two films here and there. And she also went back to um, just performing live. Do you think if Judy had been a man, would she have been treated any differently in the 40s and 50s in Hollywood? I definitely think she would have been paid more. There was a large pay discrepancy between between. I think there still is. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Um, But I think, I mean, and obviously there was, you know, the, the pressure and to look and be a certain way as a woman that I think it's, I think it's more difficult for women as they age in the industry. So dealing with that, but honestly, I think it, when you're that big of a star, I think the other experiences across the board are are kind of the same, like the struggles and the pressures that that you have to deal with. Towards the end of her career, how was Judy perceived by Hollywood insiders and studio heads? And, and how did the public view her? Well, her struggles with addiction were were very well known at that time I mean she she'd been pulled off movies you know she ruined productions you know or made them go way over so people people knew this about her you know she had gone to get treatment you know at different times um but so people knew this about her and that that did make it more difficult for her at times to be hired um but what's interesting is her one of the big comebacks in her life was her performance at the Palladium in London. And when she did that performance, you know, she was absolutely terrified to go on the stage. And she hadn't been on the stage in so long. that, And she suffered from extreme stage fright sometimes. And a lot of performers do, even though once they they get out, they, they enjoy being a performer. Uh, it, it can be really nerve wracking, especially if it's something you haven't done in a while, or you do have this reputation you're trying to overcome. And Judy goes out and the audience was so in love with her that even in the first you know, few songs, maybe she's messed up her words a little bit. And they were like, it's okay. Keep going. You're doing amazing. You know, she just... <laughs> Just the the voice and the sincerity and the connection she was able to create with an audience was really her magic, you know, her superpower, as we like to say today. And that, I think, was really the key to her being the figure that mm. she is today um, and that, that she was back then. So people knew, you know, p- people word word gets around about those kinds of things and there are always people that that judge and but at the same time you know when you have a great talent like that it it can overcome a lot and and people are very tolerant of a lot of things how how have things changed in hollywood uh since the golden era what what do you think judy's career would have been like if she had been a child actor after that time i mean i think it we're so far from that time now that I, I think it kind of depends on the decades. <laughs> um, I think child actors are probably still pushed very hard. I mean, you, we, I, you know, I don't have to name names to know that there are some very 
famous people who were child stars that are in bad shape right now. And a lot of it has to do with maybe their parents pushing them or not protecting them the way that they should have been. Uh, I just, I think your parental support is so important and and that hasn't really changed is what your parents push you to do or what they protect you from. Um, I do think that Judy had some mental problems and some problems with addiction that could have been much better addressed in, you know, our modern era where people are forgiving of that. People are understanding of that. And there are treatments available for that. So I I think that's one really big thing that could have changed the, the way that the course of her life. And, you know, maybe we would have had her, a lot longer if those kinds of things had been understood and she was here today. Also the protections that are in place. Um, There are protections in place for children, for the way that their money is managed and uh, the number of hours they're allowed to work, those types of things. So I think Judy was a a fragile, sensitive kind of artist and you can't, they treated her like a wind up toy. And, and she wasn't. So, you know, she had a lot of like, she had, you know, nervous breakdowns a couple of times she had, she suffered from exhaustion during a lot of her films and that kind of thing, I don't think would have happened to her. And I think that maybe a lot of the drug and alcohol and those kinds of other problems maybe wouldn't have been as severe if she hadn't been pushed the way that she was. Yeah. She sounds like a human being. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, she was. <laughs> um, so uh, we always like to ask our guest experts this question. At the end of the day, if you had to pick a person or thing, it could be a concept that you think is to blame for the death of Judy Garland. Who or what would that be? Drug abuse. And, and not just because she died of an overdose. Um, and accidental overdose. I I think that that set a pattern, you know, when being given those at nine or 10 years old and really never learning to function as a person without that, like, cause she, she never had a chance to learn how to just be a functioning adult. And I think, I think that took over her life and influenced every aspect of her life. And it's ultimately what, what took her life. April, thank you so much for uh, joining us today and helping us go through the life and uh, unfortunate death of Judy Garland. Yeah, well, it's, it's been a pleasure to discuss some of the more pleasant aspects of it and also to discuss some things that have changed positively, maybe some things that need to change now. But it's been it's been a great conversation. Thank you for having me. If you'd like to hear our post-interview discussion and final verdict, head over to Patreon and subscribe. Your support is greatly appreciated. Check out our show notes for a link or head over to patreon.com slash the alarmist. Stay tuned because next week we're discussing the affair of Charles and Camilla. The Alarmist. Powered by ACAST. 
Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart, a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.